Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, take this portion of your word directed unto our hearts, O God. Help us to understand it and to live differently because of it. Please encourage us, your people here gathered. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I say, we normally live in the country of Zambia. Um, Although I grew up in Bloomington and my kids uh, grew up here, although Sarah was the only one born in Bloomington. And one of the things we've been doing is we like to go to some of our favorite haunts um, that we used to go to around town. I'm not sure. I haven't. I'm not one of these people who is addicted to Facebook, Um, although if Elliot Huck can get a Facebook account, I figured I could get one too, so I I do have one now, though I have not checked on my youngest daughter's status. I believe her status may still be that Sarah Wegener snuck into the IU Assembly Hall, and that's because One of our favorite haunts used to be the IU Outdoor Track, and then we went to the IU Indoor Track. And if you get inside the IU Indoor Track, you're in the assembly hall. So I decided we'd actually go in there, and Sarah was panicking, um, thinking that we were going to be caught and thrown in jail. So she said, would you please put my hair in pigtails so if they catch us, I can start crying, and maybe they will let us off. And I don't know what the pigtails add to that, but I think women do know that that would help. Um, So she did say that. Is that still your Facebook status? It still is her Facebook status. That's right. Another thing we went to is around the IU campus. And you know, if you go in the sample gates, um, there's an observatory in the midst of some woods. And you can get to that observatory by a number of different pathways. Uh, But it's right there. There's about six or seven different um, brick paths that lead you right to the 
uh, observatory where you can um, go and look at the stars. Well, that's a, a little picture of, of something that I see going on in this passage. Jesus was a wise teacher. And as he taught people, he used a number of ways to drive home his truth. Sometimes it was by a pretty didactic method of teaching, logical. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Sometimes he used uh, picture stories to help drive home his point. And my wife is always telling me that uh, not everybody is a disembodied brain. You need to give lots of pictures. Well, we've got a picture in this passage. Now, I understand that you hosted um, a meeting of the Presbytery, of which Tim and I are members, a couple of uh, weeks ago. And the whole service apparently was built around the theme of warfare. And the Christian life is a war. And there's a number of passages of Scripture that talks about the Christian as a soldier and that we do not battle against flesh and blood. We've got a different metaphor or a different picture, a different atmosphere here. And it is an athletic contest. Um, as an old athlete, uh, perhaps that is more attractive to me. Um, but I'm trying to find Josh. Where is Josh? Is Josh Congrove here? No, he's not here. Okay. When we need him, he's not here. He could verify that if you studied the Greek of the early verses, you would find that there is a main verb on which the other verbs in uh, the early verses of this passage hang. And that is at the end of verse 1. And it's, it's, it sets the theme, the stage for the entire passage, and that is running the race with endurance. Now, as my daughter Elizabeth can tell you, I'm a competitive father. And as my wife can tell you, I'm, I am a competitive husband. And so I would always invent these little games where I would say, okay, let's, let's see who can run to, to what, to, to pass that lamppost. First one or last one loses. So we would all take off. That's not the point of this race. There are passages in the New Testament that do say run so as to win. That's not the point here. This is, this is maybe you could even say a politically correct passage. The goal here is to finish and to finish well. And I'm not trying to beat Archie. I'm not trying to beat Nick. I'm not trying to beat Lawrence. I want to finish and I want to finish well. And I want Lawrence to finish. I want Nick to finish. I want Archie to finish. I want Heather to finish. And I think this passage before us tells us some things that we have to do. And men and women, if we don't do them, we're not going to finish well. First one we have is in verse 1. It says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. I don't think those are two separate things. I think they, they further define each other. If we're going to run the race with endurance... We've got to deal seriously with the sin that we have in our lives. We've got to cultivate a lifestyle of repentance. Um, Martin Luther one time said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, Repent ye, intended that the whole life of a believer be characterized by repentance. And that's why I started off talking about who you are. I know that I'm speaking to people who are chronic complainers, 
who are addicted to things they shouldn't be addicted to, alcohol, a number of other things. That's who we are. And men and women, this is a call to repent. Now, the older I get, the thing that I find the most difficult is to actually see my own sin, to see where it is that I am falling short. And by God's grace, He he has a number of ways that He helps us see our own sin. Um, A mentor to me in the faith is a dead white guy who lived about 400, no, what is it, 500 years ago. And this year we're celebrating the anniversary of the year of his birth. In fact, it will be 500 years since John Calvin was born in five days. So 10th July is the anniversary of his birth. But he said, how does a man or a woman come to see their sin? Well, scripture is very clear that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. But how does that actually happen? Well, Calvin, in the first book of his um, volume entitled The Institutes of the Christian Religion, book 1, chapter 7, 8, and 9, specifically chapter 9, says that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God work like hand in glove. And that's why the Connells, that's why the Carells, I'm looking for other families and they're not seeing you well. That's why the families in here, that's why fathers read the scriptures to their children. Because they want their children to come under a conviction of sin. Because if they don't have a conviction of sin, they'll see Jesus Christ as superfluous. As an add-on to their life. Rather than someone that they desperately need. Um, If I don't see my sin... I will never say, wash me, Savior, or I die. The first step in repentance is coming to see our sin. And God, God's Spirit uses His Word most of the time, but oftentimes He uses people. Sometimes people who love us, sometimes people who might feel indifferent to us. But He uses people who love us, to lovingly show us our sin, to point us areas where we are falling short. And as we come to see our sin, as the Spirit of God continues to work in us, He cultivates not only an awareness of our sin, but a hatred for it, an actual hatred for it. And as we come to hate our sin more and more, the Holy Spirit enables us to leave it behind to put it behind us, to turn from it, to run from it, to hate it even deeper, and to go and seek help and say, I have this sin, and I'm having trouble leaving it behind. Can you help me? That's the first step. If we're going to run the race with perseverance, we're going to have to cultivate a life of repentance. And I know how difficult that is for each one of us. Don't be afraid, anybody that I'm speaking to, if you're having trouble leaving a sin behind. There's no shame in going to someone else and saying, I need help. This is my desire. I have come to see 
the sin that has so easily entangled me and I need help. Because I know that the pastors and elders, that's exactly what they want. They're here for that purpose, to help us in that area. Even as they help each other in those areas as they fight sin in their own lives. So that's the first step in running the race with endurance. We need to cultivate a life of repentance. Secondly, verse 2 says we need to fix our eyes on Christ. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Athletes, athletes take off everything that might encumber them from running the race. But a disciplined athlete is normally a very focused individual. He focuses on exactly what he needs to do for his event. He focuses on his training. He focuses on discipline. He focuses on what his coach tells him to do. And while he's doing his event, he's focusing very carefully on what he needs to do to be successful. And he has practiced time and time and time again so that his body is trained to do certain things. Well, this passage says we're to fix our eyes on Christ and it describes him as the author and perfecter of faith. I can't go into a lot of details about what it means that Jesus is the author of our faith, but basically it means that he began it. He was there at the beginning. I wouldn't have faith, you wouldn't have faith in Christ this morning. If indeed you do have faith in Christ this morning, you wouldn't have it unless Jesus Christ was the author of it. Jesus Christ didn't help you save yourself. He saved you. Saved you. His death on the cross purchased our salvation for us and part of that purchase was to purchase our faith for us and now it can be given to us as a gift. Now I'm not trying to say that we don't need to in space and time put our trust in a risen Savior. We do. But the only way we do that is because He has purchased it for us. Now that's not the dominant metaphor, the dominant picture of salvation that I grew up with. I grew up in Bloomington going to churches that you'd be familiar with if I named them to you. And here is what I call the dominant metaphor for understanding salvation um, that I grew up with. Picture a swimming pool and then picture me or yourself in the middle of that swimming pool drowning. You know, it's way deep. It's, it's, it's as deep as the IU diving pool. It's 15 feet deep and you're flailing around on top of the surface and then Jesus comes on the side of the pool and takes a life preserver and throws it absolutely perfect throw right to you and it's right there in front of you but will the life preserver help you when it's sitting right in front of you no of course not you need to take it and grab it and you not only need to grab it you need to hold on to it and keep holding on to it as Jesus tows you to the shore. And then Jesus graciously reaches down and helps you out. And then he shakes your hand and says, you're saved. That's what I grew up with and I don't hold to it anymore. And I know you're not supposed to do this, but I have become partial to another way of understanding you and I aren't sitting or flailing around in the middle of the swimming pool calling out to Jesus for help. 
We're on the bottom of the pool. Fifteen feet under. And we're not breathing. That is, we're dead. And what we need is a strong and almighty Savior who will dive off the side, who will leave the safety of the side, who will go into the waters, who will go down into the deep waters and pick me up on the bottom. Lift me up. Swim with me to the shore. Throw my lifeless body onto the side of the pool. Kneel down beside me. Open my mouth. And breathe into me the breath of life. And you know that when you do that, when water starts to go into your lungs, you have to vomit up a bunch of water. Men and women, that's the way it is. That's what it means to have Jesus as the author of your salvation. He does everything. You contribute nothing to it. You're dead. And Jesus saves you completely. And he doesn't save you completely at the beginning. And then you have to fight the way through on the end. He saves you completely from beginning to end. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're not called on to turn from your sin. I'm not saying you're not called to put your trust in a risen Savior. You are. But we never do that unless God works in us, just like I said. We need to fix our eyes on that kind of a Savior. He's not only the author of our faith, He is the perfecter of our faith. As far as I can tell, what that means is that Jesus did live a life of moment-by-moment moment trust in His Heavenly Father. And He showed us how to live by faith and we're to follow that same pathway of living by faith. But where did the life of faith, of moment-by-moment moment trust in His Heavenly Father, where did it lead Christ? Well, verse 2 is very clear. It led Him to the cross. It led Him to suffering. And if that is where it led our Lord who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that's exactly where it's going to leave us. And that brings me to the third thing that we need to do if we're going to run the race with perseverance. We're going to have to somehow get a perspective on our suffering that's different from the way most people view suffering in our world. We're going to have to see God's hand of discipline behind it. And really verses 5 through 11 are all about discipline. And it's really the major theme um, of this whole passage of discipline. Now, athletes undergo all kinds of suffering, difficulties. I could talk to you about some of the uh, um, difficulties that a normal athlete will endure. Um, we live in the country of Zambia, and the country where the shooters are from, um, there was a young woman named Zola Budd who in the early 1980s uh, became one of the finest female long-distance runners in the world and America was offended by that because we thought we had the finest distance runner in the world among women and that was Mary Decker and so everybody waited for the Los Angeles Olympic Games um, and there was going to be this big showdown in the 3,000 meter run between Zola Bud and Mary Decker 
And then it looked like everything went to pot because Zola Bud was from um, South Africa and South Africa was banned from the Olympic Games because of apartheid. But she had, you could tell me, Nick, I don't remember a father or a mother who had British citizenship. And so they did a quick passport change and she now was going to compete for, for, um, for England. And it took place and the race started and then at a certain point, uh, Zola Bud, she was very tall, very thin, used to run barefoot. I don't think she ran barefoot in the Olympics, but she kind of drifted out into the second lane and, and started to go in front of the others and then started to drift and cut in in front of Mary Decker, but a little bit too soon. And um, I think Mary hit uh, Zola in the heel and a trip happened and both of them went down and somehow... Uh, Mary did something to her leg and it actually tore her gluteus muscle completely so that when she went down on the infield she literally could not get up and somehow a photographer got a picture of Mary as she was down on the the uh, the infield of the track and this is a girl who 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 was tough and who her whole last several years had been focused on this one event, this one eight or nine minutes where she was going to win the gold medal in the women's 3,000 meter run. And now she was not only injured, but she could not get up. And the camera caught her face in an absolute snarl. And if you saw that picture, you know it was a snarl that she could not move. And she was so frustrated. Athletes undergo all those kind of things. I could give many more examples. What this passage tells us we are to do is to see the difficulties that we encounter in this life as God's discipline, as a father disciplines his children. Now in this passage, and when you read the word discipline, I want you to think of of three different kinds of discipline. There is a father disciplining his children there is a, a, a church elder board disciplining its members, and there is God disciplining his sons. And we all have fit into all of those categories at one time or another. One of the things that I sometimes like to tell my students in Africa, I ask them the question, how many of you this morning are under church discipline? And if I ask that of you, I said, how many this morning, how many this morning of you are under church discipline? And when I asked that of my African students, I saw a couple hands. When I asked that of my African students, they took oh. First of all, that's a question you'd never ask in Africa. Never. Because to raise your hand when you were under church discipline would be shameful. But actually, all of your hands should have shot up because we're all under church discipline, because we are all sitting under the preaching of the word of God. And that is the first step in church discipline. And most problems can hopefully be dealt with at this point. But sometimes they go on and further correction and discipline is necessary. And what this passage is telling us is that it's not bad. It's good. It's normal. Just like I have disciplined Sarah and John and Mary 
and Elizabeth throughout their lives. And I'm still trying to do it, though it's much more difficult to spank Elizabeth today. And all of you fathers who have 19 or 20-year-old daughters know what I mean. But discipline, God's discipline is good. Now just look down through those verses in your Bibles. What are some of the things that it says about discipline? It says we're not to faint back when we are disciplined by either our Father, our Father in Heaven, or by the church. It says don't faint when you are reproved by Him. Why does it say that? It says that because that's the normal reaction when we are undergoing discipline, is that we will draw back because we don't want it. Then we're encouraged in verse 6 because it says those who undergo discipline, the only reason they undergo that discipline is because the Lord loves them. I never disciplined my children for any other reason but love. Even if I was angry wrongly at the time, the reason I did it was because I loved them. And I did not want them to fall into sinful habits. Because I know I've seen adults who pout. And men and women, there's nothing more ugly than a 55-year-old man who pouts. And one of the reasons that parents discipline their children for pouting is because they don't want them to turn into a 55-year-old man or woman who pouts. And I know what pouting is like. Discipline comes from the hand of the Lord. Discipline comes from the father of a family. Discipline comes from the elders and pastors of a church because they love us. And sometimes, continuing on in verse 6, sometimes that discipline will feel like scourging. It will feel like whipping. But then there's more encouragement. God deals with you as with sons. It's just odd in this passage that it's unthinkable that there would ever be a father who would not discipline his children. We all know that that's not the case anymore. But at least in this passage, it's unthinkable that there would ever be a father who would not discipline his children, that there would ever be a father who would not love his children. And then it says, if you don't have discipline in your life, you're actually not a child of God. You're an illegitimate bastard. We had fathers who disciplined us, and all of you fathers out there, you are to model your discipline of your children on our Heavenly Father so that when and if formal discipline needs to be done against your son and daughter, it won't be, it won't be weird, but they'll be used to being rebuked for their sin. And yes, you need to be careful how you rebuke for sin. You do need to do it tenderly. You do need to do it recognizing your own failures. And if I wasn't clear enough about three minutes ago, I was confessing my sin to you as a 52-year-old man who pouts in an ungodly, 
embarrassing way. You do need to let your children know your own failures. But just because you're a a father with failures doesn't mean you don't discipline your children. You go right ahead and you do it. Because discipline in the life of a child, in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church member, bears amazing fruit. What does verse 10 and 11 say about the fruit of discipline? The goal is that we may share in the holiness of our Heavenly Father. And it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't you want that? I think all of us want the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. And the only pathway to get there is God using difficulties, hardships, sufferings, persecutions, rebukes, the discipline of a father, the discipline of the church, the discipline of our Heavenly Father. He uses all that together. Don't ever try and figure out what you're trying, what, what God is disciplining you for. Very rare that we can figure it out. Just be grateful that He does bring discipline into our lives. Maybe you'll be better than me. Maybe someday you'll be able to kiss the rod that disciplines you. It's very difficult to do that at the time, but one of the things that I have been learning through pain is that it is good. It is good. Discipline is good. Now, our Lord endured no discipline for sin, and that's what most of us how we get into trouble is most of our suffering, most of the discipline that we have in our lives is because we're sinners. But Jesus Christ did undergo all kinds of suffering, not because of his own sin, but because of the sin around him and because that's what his father sent him to do, to suffer, to die. And when I look back at verse 2, I see something else that we have to do. How did Jesus deal with the fact that there were sinners all around him who were betraying him, who were misunderstanding him, who were, who were persecuting him, and who ultimately put him to death. How did he survive that? And it says he looked for the joy that was set before him. The joy that set before him enabled him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and ultimately it he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And as far as I can tell, that's the fourth thing we need to do. If we're going to run the race with perseverance, cultivate a lifestyle of repentance, fix your eyes on Christ, see God's hand of discipline behind your hardships, behind the things that you're going through this morning, and look to the joy that is set before you. Now, I could talk a long time about that joy. That joy is way off into the future. And I'm not trying to say that there's no joy here. The scriptures do teach that the fruit of the Spirit that's supposed to be evident in our lives is love, joy, and peace. 
But I will tell you that that joy that we experience in this world, in this life, is only a foretaste. Sometimes the foretastes are very sweet. But almost always that joy is interrupted in some way. Men and women, one day there will be no interruptions. The joy will be full. It will be complete. It will be eternal. It will be His joy. And as you are in the midst of time-bound difficulties that may be all around you, and I have no idea what they are, whether they're disciplined for your sin, whether they're sufferings that a sovereign God has allowed, I have no idea. But we're to look to the joy that is set before us. One day that joy will be ours. And that is meant to sustain us in the midst of this. Please don't forget about the joy. And I know how difficult it is to look to the joy that is set before us, but that is what I want you to do. Now, it's July. You're going to have to wait a long time. Maybe wait. Maybe you don't have to wait so long. Where's Dan Sparks? Dan, where are you? Are you here? Okay. Sorry? He's out of town. Okay. Dan's growing cross-country runners in his home. And I hear stories about his his only daughter as being a very fine cross-country runner. Now, there are some people who go out for cross-country that don't know how to run, that don't know how to run the race with endurance. I was showing my kids um, where the cross-country course used to be that I ran on. If any of you know uh, the Cascades Golf Course, and you go to the upper level of Cascades, we started up there. And then we ran to that hill, that hill where there's now this crazy, stupid Buddhist temple or something like that on the way down with all those prayer flags. But we ran down that hill. The first half mile, you would come through there in about 1 minute 58, 59 seconds. That's flying because it was all downhill. And then you ran through Cascades Park and then you came back up and you had to go back up that hill. And just as you ran down in the first half mile in about a minute 58, you were doing good if you broke three minutes as you ran back up it. But in cross country, there's always somebody who doesn't know how to run and they take off too fast. And on that kind of a course, you're flying and you fly on down there. But whether it happens before the hill or after the hill, the same effect happens to everybody. Those who don't know how to pace themselves, don't know how to run the race with endurance, they die. And they take the stretchers somewhere along that hill and they put the guy on it and they carry him up. The way we run the race with, with endurance is to do these things. And men and women, I would beg you as a pastor to do these things because all around us are casualties. That's one of the difficult things of coming back to your hometown. When you come back to your hometown and you talk to 
leaders in the church, you say, where's so-and-so? And they say, oh, they moved away. They're working up here. Where's so-and-so? And it's not that long before you start finding people who are casualties, who did not do the things that this passage calls on you to do and are no longer running the race. That's why I plead with you to cultivate this lifestyle of repentance. I plead with you, and the Word of God commands you to do that, to focus on Christ, to love discipline, and to look to the joy that is set before you. Let's pray.